0: The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront. We discuss the US considering supplying cluster munitions to the Ukrainian armed forces. And we analyse Zelensky's visit across Europe, where he met European leaders as the diplomatic world heats up ahead of next week's NATO summit.
2: Bravery. Takes
1: you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with
0: victory. We need a military strategy
1: for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's
2: going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every
1: weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team is reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 7th of July, one year and 133 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley. After the updates today, we share some news about upcoming developments for the podcast, so do stay tuned for that. But I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine.
3: Hi David, hi everybody. So the death toll from yesterday's rocket attack on the civilian apartment building in Lviv has risen to 10 and there's another 42 Injured still from that. The picture is still all over social media. You'll see it on our website. The whole roof and the upper floor is utterly destroyed there. Um, Separately, uh, the Washington Post is reporting that uh, President Joe Biden has approved sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. This is going to be part of a new military aid package worth about $800 million. Now, Ukraine has been pushing Washington, well, since the start of the full-scale invasion, really, and probably before for the US to provide these munitions to help counter Russia's superiority in long-range weapons, but also to preserve Ukraine's stocks of precision guided munitions and high mars and all the rest of it. Now the US has been hesitant to provide cluster munitions because they are they're very controversial. We can talk about why in a moment. The risk to civilians is potentially high, and there are international conventions in place banning the use of cluster munitions, which the US and others have not signed up to. And also there's a link to the Oslo Convention on anti-personnel mines. So it's a very controversial area, and hence it's taken a lot of thought. Now, it's thought that if the US make this move, they are going to, there's going to be some legal convention that, that allows them to act even though there's US law that does ban the use production on transfer of cluster munitions with a failure rate of more than 1%. And the failure rate is the important point here. All technology fails at some point and if cluster munitions can have hundreds of sub munitions in them the things that will kill and destroy vehicles and the failure rate there is that some of them it means that some of them will just be able to lie around on the floor and, and pose a threat to the area and potentially civilians long after the fighting has ceased so it's the failure rate that is very important Now, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock, she said this morning that her country opposes sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. She was asked for a comment about the potential move from the US and she's at a climate conference in Vienna. She told reporters, I have followed the media reports. For us as a state party, the Oslo agreement applies. Now, I think she's referring when the Oslo, she mentions the Oslo agreement. I think she's referring there to the Convention on the Prohibition of the Use Stockpiling, Production and Transfer of Anti-Personnel Mines. That was adopted in Oslo in ninety seven. That is separate from, but obviously in the context of these weapons linked to, but subtly separate from the Convention on Cluster Munitions, which was adopted in, uh, in Dublin in 2008. Now, that Convention on Cluster Munitions is in force. It became binding in international law by those states ratifying it in 2010, and today over 100 countries have done so, but that does not include Ukraine, Russia, the US and others. Uh, But like I say, that's subtly different from the Oslo agreement on anti-personnel mines. But just take away that it is a it is an area fraught with legal, political and reputational uh, difficulty. Now, the next one, the EU has uh, said this morning it's going to devote 500 million euros to boost the production of ammunition for Ukraine and replenish the stocks of EU member countries that have made donations so far. Under this deal, this money is going to be given in terms of subsidies to European arms firms to increase their production capacities and try to sort of get through some of those bottlenecks that are stopping ammunition supplies, ammunition and other natures of equipment being supplied to Ukraine. Now, nuclear. Uh, the UN's nuclear watchdog, IAEA, says it's making progress on inspecting several parts of the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear plant, After claims earlier on this week that there have been mines uh, placed there on the roof. So, this is IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency Chief Rafael Grossi. He was speaking today. Earlier this week, he said that the IAEA had requested access through the Zaporizhian nuclear plant, particularly to the rooftops of two reactor units, as well as turbine halls and cooling systems. He's in Tokyo. Uh, and he said this morning, I think we're making progress. We've been able to complete the tours of the cooling ponds and other places. And he added they're not seeing any indications of explosives or mines. So if they were not there or if they've been removed, that is good. And it's good to see Mr. Crossy is on the case. I'll take a pause there.
1: Thanks, Tom. Before we go to Francis for the diplomatic and political updates, could you talk a little bit more about cluster munitions? You mentioned some of the international statutes in existence that the US will have to contend with, or at least think about when it comes to supplying Ukraine with these weapons. But could you just take us back to the beginning? What are they? How do they work? And why are they controversial?
3: Yeah, sure. So the term cluster munitions, this describes a family of conventional weapons that are designed to disperse a number of smaller explosive devices over a wide area. They are... Uh, used to attack large areas where troops may be concentrated for example in a defensive position or where tanks other military vehicles are grouped together they are seen as a cheaper more effective way of destroying large numbers of personnel and equipment rather than using traditional artillery shells or precision guided munitions that are expensive and in fewer numbers Uh, and they might want to be Preserved and prioritised for more important targets like headquarters locations or certain pieces of signature kit that have to be directly attacked. So you make sure you get it with one round type thing. So cluster munitions normally come in containers that are carried or fired by aircraft. So either the container stays on the aircraft and releases these submunitions, or the whole canister comes off and then at a certain height pops open and the submunitions inside fly out basically can be launched by ground-based artillery systems can be launched from ships it's fairly crude method of delivery just have to fire these canisters in an area and then they will open up and the submunitions come out but they can contain each one can contain up to hundreds of these submunitions which are themselves referred to as cluster bombs there's a whole menage of terminology here but of course So once it's released, all the cluster bombs, the canister then does crash to the ground. So it it, in and of itself doesn't have any explosive charge, but it still is a big old lump of metal, uh, still poses a threat to people on the ground. We've seen many images from Ukraine of these canisters buried in roads, in gardens, even some in children's playgrounds. Now, there are two... Big issues with cluster munitions. First, by design, they spread these submunitions over a large area. That's what they are literally designed to do. So, if you use them in any area, but especially a built up area, you can very easily spread these things uh, into areas where there are non combatants, so civilians or military personnel who are injured or what have you, but no longer taking part in combat. They, non-combatants, should be protected from harm even in wartime. So you're scattering this stuff all over the place, then you could target the wrong people. And secondly, back to, as I was saying earlier on, it's the failure rate. So some cluster bombs will arrive on the ground and not go off. Some of them can have self-destruct mechanisms, but again, they have a failure rate as well. So you can't guarantee that everything that lands on the ground is safe or is going to going to self-destruct. And they can just lie there and they can explode at any moment, particularly if they're moved so out in rural areas you might get farmers working their land either during or after the fightings moved on the wars moved elsewhere you could get farmers tending their land and they can disturb these things and they can go off and kill people or children a lot of children uh, have been killed with these things over the years they see these weird exotic things on the ground they they explore this curious object and it goes off and it can kill and maim. And there's a legacy from across the world, from Laos, from the Vietnam War, through to the Balkan Wars and what have you. There still people today being killed and injured by legacy uh, submunitions from cluster bombs. They do degrade. So, again, that's dangerous. They can just go off at any time. But they could equally be lying there for years and, and, and decades. As I said, they are covered by the Convention on Cluster Munitions, adopted in Dublin in May 2008. But that came into force in 2010. Over 100 countries have signed that and ratified it, but not everyone. And as I say, that does include Ukraine, Russia, and at the moment the US and others. So it's an interesting and awful, grotesque discussion to have. But all weapons, they're designed to kill and maim. So ideally, there wouldn't be any. So whilst we say, well, that's that's awful, you should sign this convention and you should not use these things, I'd love everybody to do that with every weapon, but it's just not realistic. So I think we just need to be careful before we start uh, moralising about whether or not countries should sign this thing and what they should do. You shouldn't use weapons against civilians anyway. So with the, within the bounds of what I was saying earlier on about the certain areas that it's particularly dangerous to use them, built-up areas, for example, and you shouldn't be firing them anywhere near civilian areas – then those things are in existence anyway. So you, even within this construct of being able to use cluster munitions, they should be employed with the professional manner of which any weapon should be employed. So it's a very, very difficult area, fraught, as I say, with political uh, tension. So the US has yet to say it's going to allow their use, but there will be it will be controversial and they will take some political heat for it.
1: Thank you very much and I'm sure we'll come back to that in the future. As you said, it's an area fraught with difficulties, and thanks for taking us inside it just a little bit. Francis Dernley, can I come to you? There's a, quite a few different political updates to get through. We know We know that Volodymyr Zelensky has been on the move around Europe and the NATO summit approaches. Where would you like to start?
0: Thanks, David. We are now on the home straight for the NATO summit in Lithuania next week and are seeing the all-important diplomatic meetings taking place between Western leaders as they try to get their ducks in a row beforehand. They will want to put on a united front, and that's why almost all of the heavy lifting is done before these summits. Hence the heated discussions about the future NATO Secretary General in recent days before the confirmation that Jens Stoltenberg's contract would be extended. Though, of course, there remain tensions about who will succeed him in the long term, as I talked about in detail over the past couple of episodes. Today, however, Zelensky is in Prague to garner further support for Ukraine and its desire to join NATO from Czechia. No doubt he will be pleased at the subsequent pronouncements. We hear this morning from the Czech Prime Minister, Petr Fayala, that he believes Ukraine's future is in the European Union and the NATO military alliance. The country has, of course, been a strong backer of Kyiv since Russia's invasion. They were one of the first to send tanks. And Fayala said more support would come, including the donation of more military helicopters. Though Zelensky was keen to reiterate that Kyiv needed more long-range weapons to fight Russian forces. Later today, Zelensky is set to hold talks with Turkish leader Erdogan in Istanbul on the latest leg of his tour to push Ukraine's bid to join NATO and secure more weapons from allies. The talks with Erdogan, of course, a very important broker in this conflict, are also to focus on the expiring deal to ship Ukrainian grain across the Black Sea, something I referenced earlier in the week. Analysts also expect Zelensky to push Erdogan to give a green light for Sweden's NATO membership ahead of the meeting of the alliance next week. Even the Kremlin has acknowledged that it will closely follow these talks between Zelensky and Erdogan, describing the meeting as very important. Now, rewinding the clock 24 hours after our broadcast yesterday, Zelensky said that Ukraine and Bulgaria had agreed on more active cooperation in the defence sector following a meeting with the country's prime minister. In a joint press conference with Nikolai Denkov in Sofia, Mr Zelensky said, we discussed the military aid which Bulgaria gives to our country. We count on the continuation of the cooperation which has already saved many lives. And then he went on and said that Bulgaria uh, would, he would love to see Bulgaria participate in the reconstruction effort in Ukraine, particularly in education, ecology and digitization. Bulgaria, of course, is a member of NATO and the EU, two Western bodies that Ukraine wants to join, though its government has consistently opposed providing Ukraine with large-scale defence assistance. It's been accused even of having a pro-Moscow stance and wants called Crimea Russian during a 2021 presidential debate. Indeed, during his visit, Zelensky actually argued with Bulgarian President Ruman Ravdaev over his negative stance on arming Ukraine in a televised meeting cited by Politico and the Kiev Independent. At the meeting, the Bulgarian president claimed there was no military solution to Russia's war in Ukraine and that more and more weapons will not solve it. Zelensky, as one can imagine, replied by asking what the Bulgarian president would do if faced with Moscow's invasion. You would say, Putin, please grab Bulgarian territory. No, you as a real president, I'm sure you would not allow a compromise with your independence. It is your right not to support aid to Ukraine. But I would really like you to understand me correctly. He then went on. Ukraine and NATO should have shared values. It can't be otherwise. You cannot support Russia and support a balanced position because Russia wants to destroy NATO, wants to destroy Europe and the European Union. These are their goals. Do you understand me? And as described by Politico, the Bulgarian president seemed rather flustered during Zelensky's speech and eventually said he had a proposal, but asked TV crews to leave the meeting. Uh, A rather awkward end to proceedings, I can imagine. But stay, staying firmly on diplomatic matters, this is one for our listeners in far-flung places, and we know there are many of you for which we're very grateful. Back in May, Ukraine submitted a formal request to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Real tongue twister, that one, also known as the CPTPP, which is even worse to pronounce. Uh, And they pitch this to the Japanese and New Zealand authorities. New Zealand, which performs the legal depository functions for the partnership, has acknowledged the formal request. And the next step in the application process is to be determined by all members, which are due to meet in the New Zealand city of Auckland on July the 16th. Now, the partnership includes Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, with Britain becoming the 12th member state only recently. And it matters because members receive lower trade barriers to a region expected to become increasingly significant in the global economy. Plus, it forms part of a broader Western Indo-Pacific tilt. Britain joined it several months ago as part of its strategy to shore up its allies in the region. And with Ukraine wanting to become part of the West's security architecture, I would argue this will show their allies the level of the commitment. So that's where we are in the diplomatic space, David. A busy day with busier to follow, not least with President Biden's visit to the UK on Monday, which will be very interesting indeed.
1: Thank you very much, Francis. We'll come back to you later for some more updates, I know. Uh, But Tom, can I come to you first? Um, there have been several other stories coming out of Russia, which I'd quite like you to touch on. This is uh, we've, we've got a bit of an insight into the uh, sort of the, the armored train that Putin rides around, and we've also seen the story of uh, the disguises that Yevgeny Prigozhin um, sometimes wears. I mean, those pictures are out now on, on social media; they've been they've been distributed. Um, can you take us through these stories and it'd be good to hear your comment on them?
3: Yeah, sure. So these were the two more stories here covered by Roland and uh, Genevieve here to the Telegraph. So first, Roland has been covering the extraordinary story of the raid by Russian authorities on Yevgeny Prigozhin's home in St. Petersburg that took place, we think, on the day of the mad dash to Moscow, June the 25th, I think. The mutiny, rebellion, coup, whatever it was. Now, Roland reports that Russian state television, uh, they think, To embarrass Prigozhin, basically, they've aired footage of a raid on his home uh, in which large quantities of cash and gold bars and fake passports, some of which look absolutely nothing like him, weapons and a load of disguises were discovered. Disguises including wigs, hats, uh, spectacles, military uniforms, all the rest of it. So Russian authorities released these pictures and other pictures that, that seem to have been taken from Prigojin's personal photo album of trips to various African and Middle Eastern countries. Some show him wearing a beard without a moustache, the style favoured by some devout Muslim men. I mean, he doesn't. It doesn't. It looks. It just looks so false. He's also seen sporting a variety of thick-rimmed spectacles and what have you. And so Fontanka, which is a, a St. Petersburg news outlet with close ties to law enforcement agencies, they reported earlier this week, Tuesday, that police have returned a couple of tons of cash and gold to Prigozhin. There were reports that an employee, a Wagner employee, had driven there to, uh, to get the money. And there was even a suggestion that Prigozhin had left Belarus. Remember Alexander Lukashenko said he's not here, he's gone back to St. Petersburg. There was a suggestion that he had gone back to pick up the weapons. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's quite bizarre... And, I mean, it's worth worth a look just because when I first saw these pictures, I thought they were all spam. I thought they were just made up. I thought somebody was just having a, well, clearly someone is having a laugh. But, uh, yeah, so do do go and have, have a look at those. I mean, I'm no expert in blooming disguises and what have you, but I think I, I could do a better effort than that. I mean, Inspector Clouseau comes to mind with his nose falling off, you know, that sort of prosthetic thing. Anyway. it's the It's the selfies that get me. All the selfies. But, yeah, so do go and have a look at that. The second story from Genevieve is based on work from investigators from Russia's Dossier Center news site. And they show how Vladimir Putin apparently travels around Russia in an armoured train. He's apparently taken to the train because he doesn't, he prefers not to fly because of the security threat. So he's in this huge train. There's loads of different uh, carriages equipped with all sorts of bits and bobs according to what you, what you need and how long you're going to be on it. And Genevieve says that it's equipped with, a well, her words, a suite of high tech Beauty gadgets that would make even the Kardashians jealous. Now, if you don't know who the Kardashians are, just email Francis. Uh, and we should make absolutely clear that rumours that Francis and Kim Kardashian are an item are entirely false. Uh, anyway, Genevieve says that the 6.8 billion ruble train, so that's nearly 60 million quid, about 75 million US dollars. It can be made up of 22 different carriages with a private gym, a cosmetologist studio, which I guess must be something to do with space, a medical suite, a bar and a cinema. One carriage includes a massage table and cosmetic equipment, including an ultrasound therapy machine and a vacuum suction machine, which helps with lymphatic drainage, which Genevieve says is a form of gentle massage, but which sounds to me anything but. And in one of the other carriages, you'll be pleased to hear... There is an enormous table that takes up pretty much the entire carriage. So both of those stories at the moment on our website, uh, worth a look, uh, just bizarre. We've got to mention it and make note of it because when we refer to it in the future, if we hadn't sort of dug into it, we will not believe that these things are actually true. But go and have a look and, uh, and see what you think.
1: Yeah, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it, Dom? I mean, it looks a bit he looks a bit like sort of Neil Patrick Harris in a series of unfortunate events, just a murderous mercenary or something. Um, Francis, can I just ask your opinion on this? Because I, I wanted us to talk about it, because obviously these pictures have been put out, well, it looks as if these pictures have been put out to discredit, uh, to make him a figure of fun, but there's something quite odd about the sort of ridiculousness of, of this man, you know, who previously been has been setting himself up as a sort of hard-bitten
0: soldier and is now a figure of fun. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, curious to see what you think. Well, I think it is designed to embarrass him. I think there's there's no two ways about it. These kind of images are not particularly a good look for somebody who wants to depict himself as a strong man. Uh, They are rather cringe-inducing, to Dom's point. I think, though, that this is really designed in the broader political context to detract from the overarching humiliation of the mutiny. And in that sense, I'm not really sure that it's successful. The fact that Prigozhin is seemingly able to be travelling to Russia, for all of the reasons I was talking about yesterday, is really the main story here. And however much that the authorities might be trying to distract from that fact. The very nature of the way in which he seems to be able to flout uh, what one would expect in the circumstances of launching a mutiny and shooting down planes is really the story here. And I would expect for us to see more criticisms than we have of Prigozhin publicly. And I would... my my assumption is that the reason we have not seen that yet is that Wagner do still maintain popularity amongst elements of Russian society, particularly important elites. Of course, we've already described the purging of certain generals who may have been sympathetic to him. And furthermore, I think the virtues afforded by the Wagner group to Russia are still at this moment significant, not only in terms of the forces that they have, which may well be fixing Ukraine in place in the sort of North axis around Kyiv. If indeed there are still some Wagner soldiers in Belarus, we just don't know, but also because of the vital role that Wagner plays in Africa. And I won't go over that territory again now because I've done so in the past and I will do so in more detail again in the future. But Wagner is a key instrument of Russia on the international stage. And so to totally disavow it now and to destroy it overnight would have major political consequences for Russia's international reach. And so my guess, and it is a guess, I I emphasize that, is that this is going to be a long, gradual decline for Prigozhin, or at least that's going to be the intention from the Russian state, that they will use him whilst he is useful. And they will attempt to cleave power gradually away from him. And then who knows, at some point, he will just be disappeared. You know, when the world isn't looking, he will die in an accident of some kind or um, fall out of a window. That is the expectation here, but I think there's been a calculation that at this moment it is too risky to see him expunged from the scene. There are too many things that he offers that are advantageous, but I do not expect him to be in the long term, a key player in Russian society. As we've said many times, Putin does not forget those who have betrayed him. Sometimes it's been decades that he has remembered slights against him and then he's had people murdered in foreign countries, including here in Britain. And I think that will be ultimately Prigozhin's fate. So if I were him, I'd be watching very carefully what I eat and who gives it to me. Thank
1: you, Francis. I slightly put you on the spot there, but it's very good to get your thoughts on that. I know you've got another couple of articles you want to draw our listeners' attention to to end the week.
0: Thanks, David. Since it's the end of the week, I wanted to flag an interesting article and a report for listeners as we approach Vilnius in the coming days. The first is by the British Member of Parliament, Bob Seely, a member of the Defence Select Committee and an expert on Russia, which I commissioned for The Telegraph to assess the row over Jens Stoltenberg's replacement. And I recommend it for its thoughts on that, but also for its neat summary of the state of play and core questions as we enter the summit. He asks, does the EU and the United States want Ukraine to win? And are we doing enough to bring it about? This fundamental question explains in part the battle over who becomes the next NATO Secretary General. Do we prioritise delivering an epoch-defining task of systematically supporting Ukraine in the coming months whilst preparing for the necessary containment of Russian dictatorship? Or do we prioritise the superficial preservation of unity, even if it aids Putin, in the long term? He then goes on. The overriding US concern, and it is an understandable one, is that the Ukraine war must stay in Ukraine and that at all costs, direct conflict between NATO and Russia is to be avoided. Therefore, US thinking appears to run. Russian forces must be weakened until such time as the Kremlin is forced to the negotiating table. The problem with this laudable argument is that it may be based on a misunderstanding of the Russian regime and a sense of wishful thinking that Russia will negotiate without keeping significant chunks of Ukrainian territory. Not only is Putin happy turning his nation into one in perpetual conflict with the West, But also, the longer the war continues, the greater the danger to all of us as Russia becomes more unstable, more dangerous and more willing to escalate. Currently, to me, Putin's strategy in Ukraine is threefold. First, make life unbearable for Ukrainians by targeting the infrastructure of basic civilian life. Second, hold a line and the territory Russia seized in the opening phase of the war. And third, break the Western military and financial umbilical cord in which Ukraine relies. A long war so it's no one apart from the Russian dictator. So as I say, I recommend that piece because it, I think, as I say, lo- summarises the state of play at the moment in quite an articulate and um, clear-minded way. The other piece I want to recommend is an interesting paper by Dr. Benjamin Tallis, a senior fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations, on this fundamental issue of security guarantees. And it tries to offer a mid-term solution which sees Ukraine get the guarantees it may need and want, but without perhaps necessarily at this moment getting the NATO commitment, which is, as it says, and I'll go into in a moment, difficult. It's a detailed and well-researched argument, but I, so I can only summarise it, but it has implications for German foreign policy and Western powers more broadly. It says... Even though more allies are realising it is the best option for their security, consensus on a fast track for Ukraine into NATO is unlikely to emerge before the summit, with Washington the primary holdout. This raises the question of what security assurances can be offered to Ukraine in the meantime, and whether they will help foster this consensus in the medium term. The answer will have a profound impact on Ukraine's future prospects, but also on NATO state signalling about their willingness to defend democracies. The onus is on European NATO states, including the UK, Poland, France and Germany, to find a workable but also credible solution to protect Ukraine now, but also to show that Europeans can and will do more for their own selective security in the long term. And then the paper proposes an enlarged joint expeditionary force merged with the combined joint expeditionary force, which are uh, already major uh, defence packs within Europe. Um, which they would call or he calls in the paper uh, J-E-D-I, Jedi, which could form the basis of such a collective security offer. He says it meets three core tests. First, it provides a credible deterrent against Russia and thus meets Ukraine's immediate security need. Second, it acts as a facilitator of, rather than alternative, to NATO membership for Ukraine in the medium term. And third, it establishes a security framework through which Europeans can address Washington's legitimate concerns over Europe's ability and willingness to take responsibility for their own security, thus reducing both its dependence and burden on the U.S., Now, no doubt, these are the kind of conversations that are taking place behind closed doors as we speak. But this is a really fundamental question for Ukraine and one that it's facing now, particularly. And it's about whether the security guarantees can be made in exchange for Russia keeping Crimea, for instance. And I know I've talked about this. Uh, In the past, most Ukrainians say absolutely not. So even if they were offered security guarantees that would essentially mean that it would be impossible for Russia to launch a future war. If that came at the price of losing territory, they say it is not worth it because of the long term ramifications and damage of Russia remaining in its sphere of territory or of of, uh, control and influence. And so I think that's, again, one of the, the vital pressure points in the war at this moment and one that may evolve in the coming weeks and months. But at the moment, I don't see changing. And yet, if this is on the table, a security guarantee that gives Ukraine an assurance that this can never happen again, who knows, in six months' time, a year's time, that might be a more appealing offer than it is now. Part of me hopes it isn't and that we get to the stage that we, of course, would like to see, which is a complete repudiation of what Russia has tried to do in Ukraine and war crimes. But this will remain, I think, on the forefront of the minds of many, many politicians in Europe at the moment, which is why I recommend this interesting paper to listeners. Thanks, Francis. For our final thought today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, in fact, we've got
1: a bit of announcement to share with you. Dom. This weekend marks 500 days of
3: war and 500 days of our reporting on it. And over that time, it's been an honour for us to be listened to by so many of you around the world, including those of you who are in senior leadership positions in your respective countries. And in particular, we've heard from many of you in the United States. And we're very excited to announce that in mid-September, the three of us will be taking the podcast on the road, travelling to the US in order to meet listeners and interview senior figures uh, in some way involved in the war. So, why the US? In short, because it's increasingly clear to us that the American role in this war in the coming months is going to be increasingly important and scrutinised, especially in the context of what could be one of the most significant American elections in decades. Plus, we are grateful to have so many listeners out there, many of whom write to us to say, that as American coverage of this war has waned, we provide one of the few regular resources for following the conflict. So thank you for that. Um, and in a small way, we want to acknowledge you and build on the foundations and the community we have laid together. So the exact dates will be coming are yet to be determined. But our current plan is to be based in Washington, D.C., uh, with side trips by one or all of us to record interviews. And we hope at least one episode of the podcast with a live audience. Uh, in due course, we'll be sharing a link where you can register interest in meeting us. But for now, we wish to put out a request to American listeners to the podcast who are active in the US response to the war, um, experts, policymakers, military figures, anyone who can offer insights on their important work and will be willing to talk to us. For me, I'm especially interested in hearing from people who work at or for the Pentagon and the intelligence community. We've already liaised with some of you, but we uh, we welcome um, any messages from, from many more. Uh, and I'm also very keen to visit uh, Highmire's factory or any other uh, part of the industrial complex that uh, that directly supports the war.
0: As for me, I want to thank the many of you who've already reached out personally, offering assistance and insights. One of my priorities on the trip will be to interview congressmen and congresswomen involved in the American response to this war from both sides of the aisle and who share different perspectives. Uh, Likewise, we know that we've had listeners in the White House, including the Twitter account of President Biden himself in one live episode. So if you're working there, please do reach out. Finally, inevitably, if you are a journalist, historian or an academic with expertise on international affairs in Washington, D.C., New York or Boston, I'm very, very keen to hear from you.
1: My priority will be interviewing people about the human cost of this war, especially expat Ukrainian communities in the United States. If you do work at any of the Ukrainian institutions out there, please do reach out to us via the usual email address at ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk or via our handles on Twitter which are always in the description for every episode. Likewise, if you know of a large community of listeners near you, do let us know. We'd love to know where you are. Just to stress, we'll be sharing a link soon with more information about the live events and our movements, but for now we're just trying to cast a wide net of those of you who might like to speak to us. We look forward to hearing and meeting you in September. Thank you again for your incredible loyalty to the podcast, and especially to those who have subscribed to the paper in order to support our work. It really does make a huge difference. It's an honour to do this and be part of your routines every day. This week, we reported on the death of Ukrainian writer and poet, Victoria Amelina. Victoria died aged 37 of injuries sustained during a Russian missile attack on a pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk, eastern Ukraine. An acclaimed Ukrainian novelist and poet, at the start of the 2022 Russian invasion, she retrained as a war crimes investigator. We interviewed Victoria twice for this podcast, and in April I had the pleasure to welcome her to the studio in person. She graciously for giving us her time during a visit to London. In both conversations, she demonstrated all the eloquence and intelligence that makes her murder all the harder to comprehend. Here's our conversation from last year, where she spoke about Maidan and the revolution of dignity in 2014 that had such a large impact on her life and work. We hope you learn as much from her as we did. Would you take us back to Maidan? It was the anniversary yesterday. What were you doing then, and what was the political scene like in in Kyiv?
2: Um, You know, uh, before the Euromedan protests started, uh, we were quite a disappointed generation. I mean, I was born uh, in uh, 1986, so I'm a, a Chernobyl generation, so to say. Uh, and we were disappointed uh, because after the revolution of 2004, the so-called Orange Revolution, changes didn't really come. The presidency of Viktor Yushchenko was quite bleak. Uh, and this led to uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, a gangster-like, or actually he was a gangster uh, president, to uh, come to power. So we were really disappointed by that. Uh, still, uh, we... Um, Uh, did live normally, I mean if you were a journalist or an activist you could be targeted by the government, Uh, but ordinary people felt secure and had hopes for uh, um, slow but uh, steady European integration. Uh, That is why, um, of course, when the government suddenly decided not to sign the trade agreement with the European Union, uh, it sparked uh, protests uh, immediately. But uh, those protests wouldn't uh, become a great deal unless uh, Yanukovych uh, and his accomplices not decided to beat up students on Maidan. Um, I wasn't joining students uh, at, at the initial protests, but I was in Kyiv immediately after. Uh, The students uh, were beaten by the police, brutally beaten by the police. And this was an important moment for Ukraine because everyone who uh, was coming to the streets uh, that day didn't know if uh, he or she would be joined by others. And we've already seen uh, those, you know, blood on the faces of uh, young students and we knew that anything could happen. Uh, But still, uh, you know, that... uh, Uh, Several hundred thousand people showed up to protest against police brutality. And so uh, these protests for uh, um, going into European uh, direction uh, came to be just protests uh, for human rights, rule of law and dignity. Um, So it was very important for me as well. Uh, I used to be a working mom back then. I had a 2 years old child, so I couldn't be on Maidan all the time. I also had to work, uh, but uh, I came often and... uh, Maidan um, managed to create kind of parallel society in Ukraine, we had everything there, library, uh, university, uh, it was full of uh, all kinds of art activities, I was beginning uh, to write at the time and my poems uh, were printed out and uh, hanged on the walls uh, uh, of the Kiev administration um and uh, i think uh, back then we realized that we have each other we can trust each other and that we would be able to uh, build the country that we were dreaming about
1: just very quickly on that you mentioned a library and a university could you talk us through that what what does that mean what, what did you what did you see on the streets what were people doing
2: uh, there were, for example, lectures. Uh, so, of course, uh, uh, students uh, started all this uh, revolution and uh, uh, their are lecturers uh, from professors from the universities, of course, all supported uh, Maidan. Uh, so there were actual actual uh, lectures uh, for the protesters. You could, you know, not just wander around, uh, but also join and uh, listen to a lecture. You could uh, take a book because, uh, of course, the core of uh, protesters were People from Kiev, but people also came from different places. So if they would need a book to read before going to sleep, uh, they could borrow a book. Um, so uh, we had kitchens. So I mean, all the processes you would uh, have on the state level, they were present uh, uh, on Maidan, and they were all done, you know, voluntarily. And uh, this is why it was so uh, unique and warm.
1: Victoria, you wrote your first novel about Euromaidan. What what happens in it and what inspired you to write it?
2: Basically, my novel isn't so, uh, you know, uplifting as I'm now talking about Maidan because uh, uh, I wrote it after seeing how people reacted to a movie about the Arab Spring shown on Maidan. Um, Somehow, uh, maybe because I'm a writer, even when uh, there were those happy days when we mostly, you know, concentrated on creativity uh, parts of protest, I realized that uh, this doesn't work and uh, government uh, won't pick up and we won't pick up, so this might end up uh, with violence. Uh, but uh, when the uh, city about uh, um, ARP Spring was shown, um, some Ukrainians uh, uh, told that, uh, oh, this, we wouldn't end up with such a violence because we are Europeans, we are different. Uh, uh, they are good guys there, but they are somehow so emotional. Um, So not everyone understood that basically we are all human and Arab Spring uh, could have been just like us, but uh, uh, they had different situations. And at that uh, time, I realized that I have to write about uh, uh, a person who uh, first lives through the Arab Spring, uh, and knows uh, how it is from from the inside, and then uh, is really skeptical about joining the protests uh in uh, his uh, country in ukraine uh but eventually it does join uh so I was uh kind of connecting both those movements and of course uh my novel, which is called false Syndrome, is uh also about growing up uh the protagonist uh, Um, learns to to understand others both uh, uh, people who are really far away like the protesters uh, of the Arab Spring and uh, people next to him he learns how to trust his fellow Ukrainians
1: I've got quite a big well two big questions for you Victoria Um, how do you think Euromaidan changed Ukrainian society And, and also how did it change you?
2: Well, it changed me and I will talk about that because I think this was uh, quite... uh Uh, similar for all of us, it gave me a chance to reflect uh, on my own family history and my identity. Uh, I grew up uh, in the western part of uh, Ukraine, in Lviv, uh, but uh, I grew up speaking Russian, surrounded by all things Russian, and uh, thinking that somehow, uh, well, being Ukrainian is nice, but this is something, you know... um, not 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 important and uh, ukrainians were always depicted as someone uh, funny in uh, russian movies russian literature uh, so we didn't think about uh, ourselves uh, as of uh, people capable of uh, achieving something of uh, being strong um, and power uh, powerful uh and suddenly uh we were successful at Maidan. Suddenly we saw each other and we were proud of uh, each other and we took responsibility for our country. So it was a moment when I realized that, for example, my grandfathers were speaking Ukrainian, but somehow I speak Russian and I decided to switch to speaking Ukrainian. Um, But Although it wasn't about about ethnicity, of course. I mean, one of my grandmothers is Russian. But uh, it was about realizing that we are Ukraine and who we are and that we uh, have each other and thus can can build a country together.
1: Just sort of connected to that, I've just got two more questions before. I know Dom and Francis are also listening and might have a few as well. But looking forward from 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 Maidan what would you want our listeners to understand from your perspective about Ukraine's political journey you know from from Maidan to 2022 how has it changed
2: I think uh, we are going back home you mean i mean the first uh, slogan of Maidan was uh, very simple ukraine is europe uh and we didn't mean uh, you know the um uh, level of <laughs> uh, life or something we we meant values uh, and I think Ukraine is uh, the only country where people died for, for uh, the flags of European Union. And it be- meant something uh, really huge for us. And it doesn't matter even that uh, the UK is uh, not currently in the European Union, because we meant uh, Europe, which includes this, uh, you know, common space and means to us dialogue, rule of law, human rights, things like that. And uh, Ukraine is all about that right now. Uh, Perhaps we were quite naive before. um, In the 90s, uh, when the um, Soviet Union collapsed, we (laughs) expected that uh, instantly our life would be like uh, in the Western movies. Uh, I mean, uh, like we would uh, have a better better way of life. But of course, uh, this didn't happen. uh, and uh, mm, we didn't realize why. But uh, finally, we got to this level where we realized that values are important. And if our values are um, are right, if we are uh, for rule of law, human rights, dignity, uh, then this will change our lives. And th- these things are uh, really important. I also like how a uh, Yale professor, uh, Marcy Shore. Uh, says that uh, before Maidan, um, there was no dignity because you could buy anything. There was this corruption, of course, which we all hated. Uh, And Kant says that uh, dignity is when you cannot buy something, then this thing has dignity. Uh, and we couldn't be, you know, paid off to go away uh, from Maidan and we couldn't be paid off uh, to now give up uh, our territories and our people to Russia because we have dignity.
1: Well, thank you, Vic- Victoria. Um, yes, I mean, I'm just remembering when Dom and I were, were in Kiev in July, we we, we did go to Maidan. It's an incredibly moving place. Um Final final question from me, if that's all right. Um, you mentioned that you now work as a war crimes researcher. Could you just give us an idea of what that involves? What, what do you do day to day?
2: So it's not uh, like uh, I'm on a mission uh, every day, but I'm a, a war crimes researcher working on the ground. So, for example, uh, I can go on a mission to uh, Zoom, uh, that there would be a team of uh, six other war crimes researchers like me, uh, we'd have a plan to, for example, explore the uh, forcible um, abductions uh, in the Zoom region. Um, and this is, uh, unfortunately, very easy to do, because if you um, just uh, uh, get out of a car and ask a random person if uh, he or she knows about people uh, Who were abducted during the Russian occupation you will necessarily meet such a person and this person will lead you to to many many eyewitnesses and survivors uh this way and i'm talking actually about a a real case this way in balaklia our team uh, discovered three torture chambers during a week uh, which is, of course, striking because this is just a team of six people. Uh, we reported uh, those uh, findings to uh, the General Prosecutor's Office of Ukraine and uh, Ukraine Security Service. And they were able, of course, to send uh, a laboratory there and... Uh, add uh, materials that we've gathered uh, to, to to their cases. So we are working basically as um, an adjunct uh, team uh, to Ukrainian judicial system. And we are also ready to uh, pass the testimonies uh, uh, to the international organizations like International Criminal Court uh, and others, uh, and also archives and uh, uh, sometimes media if, uh, uh, if the witness agrees to that, of course.
0: Well, thanks for all of that, Victoria. Um, Dom and Francis, do you have any questions? I'll go first if that's all right. Thank you very much Victoria for for talking to us. Really interesting hearing your perspective on, on obviously a very significant event in Ukrainian history. My question is just uh, one about I suppose the memory of Maidan really. I'm interested in in the symbolic resonance of it and whether it was always this national event celebrated by the majority of Ukrainians or whether it began life as something only celebrated by a sort of liberal minority first and then its, its significance became wider as time went on.
2: You know, my feeling is that it was always significant. Uh, I mean, we all understand that immediately after Maidan, Russia annexed Crimea and started its hybrid aggression in uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Uh, So the memory of Maidan was uh, always in the shadow of war because war was uh, the most important uh, thing for us uh, since 2014. So we couldn't really... Um, you know concentrate on preserving memory but um, uh, this was you know important for everyone i know to go to Institutska street in kiev uh, to visit maidan to to see where it all happened because of course not everyone was present uh, there in february like i wasn't uh it it was uh um it was very important for everyone still to you know um, honor the memory of the uh, people killed there. We call those uh, heroes Heavenly Hundred. Uh, and uh, Hundred, uh, uh, this uh, naming of the unit goes back to Cossack times. So that this is why it's Heavenly Hundred, not because it's exactly 100 people. Unfortunately, there's more. Mm, uh, Obviously, uh, there were people uh, who had uh, other views who were anti-Maidan, and they would not, of course, honor the memory um, but I don't know this is this is okay. This is a society that is free, and uh, everyone can can have their views. Uh, unfortunately, of course, uh, this memory became very important also because uh, there is a war and we need unity to win. Um, but I would say that majority of Ukrainians uh, honor the memory of uh, Maidan heroes.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question actually is 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 how has the war changed perceptions of Maidan. How has Maidan been seen in the context of the invasion back in February or perhaps, you know, even even earlier than that with the annexation of Crimea?
2: Um, y- y- you see, uh, we just realized that Russia used this moment when uh, when Ukraine was weak uh, and uh, uh, behaved like you know a looter who, who tries to steal something while uh, the master of the house uh, is, is wounded uh, but uh, um, you know unfortunately what was lost definitely is the part I was talking about uh, because you know before uh, this interview I was thinking that I should tell you about this library, university art because uh, of course it all ended up with uh, those shootings uh, in the main square of Kyiv uh, the ended up with tragedy and then the war started but in the beginning uh this was all about solidarity and feeling so, feeling so warm and together and it helped a lot uh, to build such a vibrant civil society in ukraine that we have now and i think uh, uh it's uh, quite a phenomenon um so uh, i think this is the missing part and uh basically i'm even glad that uh, i uh wrote and dared to publish my uh a false syndrome novel uh, in 2013, I I mean immediately after the revolution, uh, because I I wouldn't be able to write about uh, the revolution of dignity in the same way now. Um, because, of course, we we are all much more saddened, and I wouldn't catch, you know, this vibe of uh, coming together um, and uh, believing, you know, we we were desperate. I mean, I realized that there wouldn't be an instant wonder uh, that we wouldn't be in the European Union tomorrow, for sure. I mean, I wasn't naive, but still, uh, to... Despite everything, risk your life and uh, try to change, uh, and and have dignity to to strive for a change. This was really important, and I'm I'm really happy that uh, I'm I lived through that. I've I've been witness to that, and uh, my friends uh, uh, are those who even fought at Kroshevskogo Street. So um, this is very important.
0: Just one final question from me, and I know that Don will have a, a question or two as well. This is just related, you talked about your novel there. And I'm just very interested in your perspective on the present state of Ukrainian culture following the invasion and what you expect to see from Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian culture after the war.
2: You know, we were always caught uh, in this trap of explaining ourselves. Uh, Ukraine uh, was uh, a blind spot on the mental map of Europe and world for a long time. So we always had to explain too much about our- ourselves instead of writing about you know, general global issues. Uh, and I would like Ukrainian literature to stop being provincial in a sense that we should not only define ourselves in our novels. We should, you know, write about, uh, define <laughs> define the world, not just ourselves. But this also means that uh, the world should also view us, uh, um, you know, um, as equals, uh, that, um, I would really love that, uh, you'd like to, to hear us not only when we speak about war and Ukraine, uh, but also about, I don't know, uh, climate change or, uh, other things that concern every one of us. So I really would like us to just become, you know, integral parts of Europe and free world in cultural sense as well.
1: Well, thank you, Francis, for your question, and thank you very much, Victoria, for your answer. Dom, can I ask—is there anything from you, or shall we uh, go to our final thoughts?
3: Uh, just one year if I may. And Victoria, lovely to to have you on. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, ten years, nearly ten years on from Maidan, a lot of the people fighting today were children back then, or very, very young, um, and maybe not not aware of the political. Um, context they were they were growing up in so just be really interested in your thoughts on so where is the spirit of Maidan today how do you keep that going and is it wise for any politician of any from any party of any color um, to try and claim the spirit of Maidan or, or is that the surefire way to to upset the vibrant civil society you describe thank you
2: You know, finally, I'm uh, right now at my friend's place uh, because I didn't have uh, uh, hot water, so I moved uh, uh, to her apartment today. She's uh, just uh, 24, so she was uh, essentially a kid uh, when Maidan happened. Uh, And right now she's a leading figure in uh, culture management in Ukraine, and uh, she's just one of many examples of uh, people for whom uh, Maidan was, you know, a major event that happened during their you know, childhood uh, and you don't have to even explain to them because they were all following Maidan uh, it's worth uh, saying that uh, even you were not uh, when you were not in Kyiv, Kiev so in the center of events uh, when you walked out to the streets you could hear like when the windows are opened uh, you hear uh, the sound, not from the TV even, but from the internet translations. You know, from from all the streams people are, are listening to, and of course, the stream is one for for. I mean, from the most popular. Uh, uh, channels uh, so you can go and hear so uh, people just were uh, watching and following and I think for for the kids uh, it's uh, even more you know magical because to them this was a place and struggle which they couldn't join uh, but which they admired
1: Well, thank you, Dom. Thank you, Francis, for your questions. And thank you, Victoria, so much for uh, your answers. We're coming to the end of our time uh, together today, unfortunately. Um, Victoria, thank you so much for all your time. Would you like the final thoughts today?
2: I would very much agree that uh, democracy is precious and unique uh, and we shouldn't take it for granted Uh, and I'd repeat again that Ukraine was such a blind spot for most of you unfortunately and now you see see us but you mostly see us in a struggle but we're not only about war, we're about art, science, IT startups having fun, so in a nutshell life and thank you so much for all your support for for the weapons, we mainly need weapons as you know, Uh, but uh, after the victory, I really invite you to um, to do all other things with us like IT startups, science, read us, listen to us and uh, everything uh, like that. Thank you so much.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash latest or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.